Cash, have you seen the June issue of Bella News Magazine? Yeah, what a great cover that thing. Oh, it's such a good cover. We got Peter Sagan on the cover on the Roubaix uh, cobblestones, sprinting over these cobblestones, and they don't look like stones. They look like rocks. He looks like he's mountain biking. Yeah, it's a, it was a it was a tough uh, tough choice for that for the cover, but I think we nailed it with that one. So inside, this was our dirt issue, our springtime dirt issue. We actually have stories about Jeff Bush making a comeback in mountain biking. We have a great story about the Land Run 100, one of the most innovative gravel races out there. And then we have a bunch of good stuff taking us inside uh, your time hanging out with Corinne Rivera at the Classics. Yeah, that's right. We got to spend some time uh, in the back of Team Car during a recon ride. And then, uh, yeah, just chatted with her after after and before pretty much every race. I'm sure she got sick of it, but it was a good story that we got out of it. And finally, we have Andy Hood's uh, rundown of how classic season was and the battle between Peter Sagan and Quick Step. So that is the June issue of Bella News Magazine on newsstands right now. Go check it out. Let's get on with the show. You're tuned into the Bella News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer. Joined today by Dane Cash here at the Velo News World Headquarters in Boulder, Colorado. Hello, Dane. How are you adjusting to Boulder, Dane? I'm doing well, Fred, but you know I haven't really spent that much time here because you've been sending me all over the world to cover bike races. So I've only been here for like a month and a half. Which, yeah. Not like I'm complaining, of course. You haven't been able to go see like the artisanal uh, dog sweater factory? No, not yet. Or- although. I- I was at the tour of California, so there are probably plenty of those there too. You know, yeah. Well, Dane is a uh, recent transplant to Boulder. We're going to be checking in with him as the year goes along to see how he adjusts to our nice little enclave here at the foot of the Rockies. Uh, Dane, today we are so lucky to be joined by Andrew Hood coming to his from his man cave in Spain. Hoodie, have you recovered from the Giro d'Italia, or are you, like Tom Dumoulin, probably like soaking every day in a bath of ice? How's your recovery from the Giro coming along? It's interesting when you do these Grand Tours, Fred. I know you've been on a few of these. I mean, it is almost just full gas every day. You know, they're like a string of driving like a maniac, going to a start, going to a finish, usually driving over a mountain pass in a rush basically all day for three and a half, four weeks straight. And then suddenly it's over. It's like a house of cards. Like, woof. And, uh, I mean, that's the way I am right now. I'm just suddenly, uh, I got back, uh, a long flight back home yesterday and I'm just like, my head's numb and, uh, just trying to soak it all in. What a, what a great Giro. What I love about the, uh, headspace that you're in after covering a grand tour is how you have absolutely no recall from some tidbits from the last three weeks. So like, could you describe for me the hotel you stayed in uh, when you were in Sicily? Probably not, right? <laughs> actually, I could I could actually recall one or two of those hotels in Sicily because they they were actually worth remembering. It really is though; it's a blur. It's one of the kind of running jokes. You go around the Peloton, you ask a rider or a sport director, you know, where they are, what day it is, what stage it is. They have no idea. And I think the journalists aren't really too much further behind those guys. I feel like Dane and I had that at the Tour of California. One morning we woke up in, uh, where were we with the, uh, where we did the podcast on, by the hot tub? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Where, we were somewhere in the Central Coast. Area. I don't even remember. Yeah. And that was just a week-long race. Oxnard. We were in Oxnard, I think. Oxnard. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, man, yeah. that was a great podcast. Well, guys, let's get to it. We have a great episode today. Uh, first, we're going to talk about the finale of the Giro d'Italia. Chris Froome wins his third Grand Tour in a row. Second half of the show, we're going to actually catch up with Chris Case, our managing editor, and talk Dirty Kanza because he is racing the Dirty Kanza, that being the 206-mile gravel race out in the wilds of Kansas. He's racing it this year for the second time ever. We're going to talk a lot about who to watch, why this race is so different, what he's expecting to do. Apparently, it's just this uh, really painful, awful uh, cycling challenge. But guys, let's get to it. Jared Italia wrapped up this weekend. Chris Froome came home with the overall. And since then, the cycling world has been just ablaze with fiery takes about how Chris Froome's victory is the worst thing ever in pro cycling and how, you know, he was obviously fueled to his victory by a motor in his bike or bat blood or some type of toxic waste coursing through his veins. But, you know, when we look at those last few days in the mountains, just how tired everyone was, I think that you can make a decent argument Chris Froome won this thing because everyone got really, really tired. 
Hoodie, you were there, stage 20, uh, the last day in the mountains. How would you describe the attitude and the feeling of the riders uh, on that last mountain day? The riders coming in, Fred, to the finish line that day, they were literally on their knees. Uh, there was a great shot, I'm not quite sure who got it, of the Gruppetto coming out of a tunnel with about 3K to go in the last climb at Trevenia. And they were literally almost, it appeared like it was just a, a, a communal face of suffering. Uh, those last three days in the Giro really were something brutal. After what was really a hard Giro, right from the gun, it was, it was everyone I talked to during the Giro said it was the hardest Giro they've ever done, if not the hardest Grand Tour they've ever done. And everyone always says that when you're in the middle of it. But even talking to sport directors, older riders who have been done many, many races over the years, what was different about this Giro is that they raced hard every day. It was like a Tour de France level of competition in the sense that it was the old school piano where they kind of just roll along and trundle along in the Tuscan uh, sun, sun, sunset in the afternoon. And suddenly Mario Cipollini waves his hand and said, OK, boys, we race for the last hour to the line. It was full gas, full full bore racing every day there was only one day they said it was old school italian where it was kind of break went away it was a sprint stage everyone just kind of rode along enjoyed the countryside and then they reeled this break in and set the sprint one day out of 21 and even what happened sunday we all saw racing around loops and and rome there was a little protest there just about how sketchy that course was Imagine racing on the cobbles of, of Rome, you know, thousands of years old, maybe in some cases. I mean, it was a crazy Giro, man. It started in Italy, ended, started in Israel, ended in Rome, man. It's like everyone was on their knees. Dane, when you're looking at a race where everyone is so exhausted for the last uh, pivotal day, a day like the stage, stage 20, yeah. I mean, is it fun to watch? I mean, is it, it didn't seem to be particularly explosive. What was your takeaway as a viewer from well, that stage? The very, yeah, the very last mountain stage, maybe less of a thriller. Uh, the penultimate stage, that they were almost as tired, and that was one of the most exciting stages in the last decade. So I, it does kind of depend on the stage. Even Zonkalan, though, when, when usually or quite often we see boring racing, there was some excitement on that stage. So th I, I think the riders. They gave it a good college try, even if they were on their knees. They definitely uh, went all out trying to put on a show. So they tried their best. One thing I'm going to remember about just the overall fatigue of the riders is how many guys just completely fell out of the top 10 in those mm. last few days. I'm, right now I'm thinking about Thibaut Pino, who put in such a huge effort in stage 19 to stay with Tom Dumoulin as they tried to pursue Chris Froome. We're sitting third place, and then stage 20, he appeared to be so gassed. Uh, it sounds like he also had some medical problems he was dealing with. But uh, he fell out of the out of contention completely. We also saw that with Simon Yates. We saw that with Rowan Dennis. You know, it just seemed like guys who had been there for two and a half out of three weeks, boy, in the last day, just just kind of fell apart. Hoodie, what were what were people saying about that? Did you get any uh, insight into like Thibaut Pino and um, what people were talking about with just you know guys falling out of the top ten? Yeah, there was definitely a lot of a buzz going around about that. And again, it kind of just went back to, the, to, to just how hard this Giro was and how intense the pace was really every day. You know, it really was surprising that we saw Chavez just flame out really in that first, uh, that first week. No real explanation. Fabio Aru just never really had it. And then uh, Simon Yates, who looked to be really on cruise control, just went way too deep in that time trial, I think, to defend Pink in that final TT and then he finished in the Gruppetto the last uh, two mountain stages after he lost that uh, that time up at uh, that, that third that opening of those first three mountain stages. Uh, you know, but then you look at this Giro, Giro field. I mean, those are some big names. They all flamed out. That was that was interesting. But really, when you look at the the depth of this field, you know how really deep was it? I mean, Tom Dumoulin was here. He was the last year's winner, of course. Chris Froome was the big man. Uh, Taking nothing away from Pino, from Aru, who, uh, who's one stage as Chavez has been a podium guy. But, you know, all the big hitters, all the top, top, top GC men, they're all going in for the tour. So I think there's part of that, too. You know, Froome came in to win. He had a rough start. He brought, like, a Tour de France squad. And I think in the end, they just steamrolled these guys. Yeah, particularly going through the names of the, the contenders. Uh, particularly the, the climbers, the biggest climbers in the world, are definitely targeting a tour this year. Obviously, Tom Dumoulin, big talent, but he's not an elite 
you know, top tier on the same level as Froome Climber. And so for Froome to put a lot of time into a guy like Dumoulin in the climbs, uh, that's not all that surprising. It wasn't that long ago that Dumoulin went from being the presumptive winner of the Vuelta Espana to finishing, I think it was sixth that year on the final mountain stage of the Vuelta. That wasn't that long ago that that happened. So it can't be all that surprising, even if Dumoulin did win the Giro last year, for Froome to pick up a huge chunk of time on a guy like Tom Dumoulin. No, I mean, we were joking about how the finale of this race ended up being what our prediction was. Right. It's just that we had to go through so much weird stuff to get there. Kind of like the NBA playoffs, you know, the finals mm-hmm. are going to be the Golden State Warriors versus the Cleveland Cavaliers. But the pathway by which those two teams got there involved all these game sevens and like, you know, weird twists and turns and other teams having the upper hand, you know. I mean, for a while there, we we recorded a Velo News show where we talked about how you know, Simon Yates was going to win the Giro, and we were big idiots for having predicted Tom Dumoulin versus Chris Froome. Well, guys, let's hear from Chris Froome, the champion. You know, you, Hoodie, you uh, were able to get some audio from his final press conference, talking about the day, talking about what it means uh, to have won this race, uh, including, you know, uh, the obvious controversy swirling around his victory. So let's have a listen. I mean, it's just been... It, it feels as if this has been the, the battle of my career. I mean, it's uh, to have got off to a less than ideal start in uh, Jerusalem, and uh, I kept kept getting knocked down. There were days, uh, obviously, crashes. There were uh, days where I should have finished in front when I didn't and lost time. And I mean, there's just been so many hurdles to overcome during this race, but. One thing stayed consistent, which was the support I received, and from my teammates, uh, the support staff in the team, um, everyone believed in me, and everyone just said, "Listen, wait, this race is is brutal. We're going to get to the last few days, and the race can really, really change." And as we've seen for some guys, I mean, when when you have a bad day in these last few days of the Giro d'Italia, you, you don't just lose 30 seconds, you lose minutes and tens of minutes. So, I mean, it's, it, it, is a, it has been an absolutely brutal race for me. Uh, it's been a brutal race for everyone, I think, uh, just judging uh, by everyone, everyone's energy levels today. I think everyone was on the limit, and um, uh, if, if anyone... As we saw uh, yesterday, uh, I mean, I, I have, I really feel for for Simon yesterday. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm really happy to have uh, got the got the jersey, but at the same time, I mean, it's a he's ridden an amazing race up until right up until yesterday, and uh, to to then uh, have the day that he had yesterday, that's extremely tough. And we saw today that Thibaut Pinot was struggling. I think that was why Astana came and rode so hard. I mean, it's, it's just been such a brutal race, but um, I just want to say a massive thank you to my uh, teammates and uh, everyone at Team Sky for believing in me and keeping the, keeping, uh, the morale up even when, uh, even when the chips were down. Looking at the whole picture, the Tour de France 2017, Vuelta, another Giro, just how big was this undertaking overall picture to do all three of these in a row, assuming, of course, you, you win tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, I mean, we still need to get over the finish line tomorrow in Rome, as you said, but um, it was a big part of the motivation for me to, to come to this year's uh, Giro d'Italia, um, was to try and win three consecutive Grand Tours in a row, and... Um, yeah, I'm sure once I cross that final finish line in Rome, that, that that will start to sink in a little bit because it's there's there's no bigger goal for for a Grand Tour rider. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's that's obviously something we're dealing with. Um, I mean I've I've certainly got uh, <laughs> a clear conscience, and um, as as I as I said, when the time is right, all the information will be shared with everyone, and I'm sure people will see it from my point of view. All right, thank you. Thanks. <clears throat> Ultime due domande, last two questions. Okay, okay. Uh, congratulations on this one. You might uh, make it, I guess, uh, for tomorrow. Thank you. Uh, well, one other question about credibility of the. Sure. Because you left the pink jersey by on Brandon uh, Wallace You've probably seen the comments as well. Uh, it has been done before, incredible escapes. And those didn't stay. I guess you understand that. We asked the questions, I asked Dave Billsford, for example, yesterday as well. Will this one stand? 
I'd be very surprised if Felon doesn't have the data because uh, we've been riding around with an extra 180 gram uh, receiver of theirs on my bike for the last three weeks, so I'd be disappointed if they don't have the data. Um, but I mean, yeah, I'm, uh, in terms of. Uh, um, sorry, what, what was the other part of the question? Ah, yes. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I can understand uh, the, 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 the parallels or comparisons being drawn uh, by, by some, some people, but um, I have every confidence it will stand. Yeah, we're going to get to talking more about that controversy. But Hoodie, while I got you here, I have a question for you. How would you describe the attitude around the Sunweb team after that stage 20? You know, there was a moment in stage 19 when it really looked like Tom Dumoulin had the upper hand. Then, obviously, he was not able to close the gap. He tried so hard on the finish to Gervinia to drop Chris Froome, wasn't able to do it. What was the sentiment like around Team Sunweb? There was an interesting moment at the finish line when Dumoulin was uh, wait at, at the line there about to talk to a uh, Belgian reporter. And there was a scene there where Froome comes up to him to tap him on the back and shake his hand in congratulations for a fine battle. And Dumoulin told the journalist, okay, start the interview now as a way almost to snub uh, Chris Froome. I think there were some raw nerves there. I think more than anything, I think Tom Dumoulin was angry that he kind of, you know, blew this Giro d'Italia a little bit. I mean, he by far was the strongest and most consistent rider in this Giro. And I think he felt that the same way. Perhaps made a couple of small mistakes, perhaps underestimated Froome a little bit when it looked like he was on the ropes. And I think that he feels like he, he should have won this this Giro, and I think that last day, some of that uh, raw emotion came out of him. I mean, he's an intense guy. He's pretty laid back and funny when you talk to him before and after a race. But in the race, you know, all these guys are just killers. And I think you know, right there at the line, he was a little bit upset about it. But I, I, I did re read some uh, later comments that uh, you know he congratulated Froome, and, and they've kind of made their peace. I mean, it's, that's the way it is. These guys, everything's PC, but it's good to see a little bit of that true raw emotion right there at the line sometimes. Yeah, I don't know if our listeners saw the, uh, the tweet from Lotto and El Yumbo talking to George Bennett uh, after Froome's big attack. And Bennett said something about Froome pulling a Landis and uh, expressed some incredulity over the events of the day. And then, of course, a day or two later, the team came out and said, well, Bennett was in no way uh, questioning the validity of Froome's results. And there's sort of similar thing where a day or two later, the rider of the team kind of comes out and says, well, I back off with that. We're not, we're not really saying anything too bad here. Yeah. What do you think, Dane? Did Dumoulin blow it? Uh, I don't know. I honestly didn't really expect him to challenge... At the beginning of the race, I didn't expect him to challenge Froome this much. So I think from the very beginning to where we are now, I think he put in a fine ride to finish where he did, only you know a little bit behind Chris Froome. And I guess in the middle of the race, it looked like he was going to win. So... Maybe a, a tactical mistake here and there, but I think he's got to be happy with where he finished. If you look at the start of the race, Chris Froome versus Tom Dumoulin, I'd take Froome every time. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and put, plant my flag in, in the ground on this one. Tom Dumoulin totally blew it. Yeah? Yeah, you know, we talked about this a bit after our emergency pod after Chris Froome's uh, big wild attack on stage 19. But, you know, afterwards, there was a report that came out that said, Dumoulin and Sunweb actually anticipated Froome to go fairly early in that stage, and their tactic was to wait, to wait for the reinforcements. Instead of, you know, really burying himself to try and stay with Froome or to do everything that he could do to go, you know, stay on Froome's heels over the finestre, the idea was, well, wait on the descent or wait in the valley, see who can catch up, and then use them to pull it back. And now, in hindsight, looking at that, that is such a huge tactical error. And another thing to think about is that who was the last guy we saw to make the huge tactical error of waiting for reinforcements? 
Well, that would be Chris Froome yeah. from Formigal. And, you know, after 2016, Vuelta a España, we had so much commentary about how Formigal was this pivotal moment because Chris Froome had made the tactical error of waiting for his teammates to see if he could close the gap. And, you know, the teammates, when they finally did get back in that group, there weren't very many of them. They were gassed. They weren't able to close the gap back to Nairo Quintana and Alberto Contador. There's part of me that looks at this performance on stage 18 and thinks, is this the lesson that Chris Froome learned from Formigal? Him putting it into effect and saying, you know what? Tom Dumoulin is going to wait. He is not going to bury himself to stay on my heels and kill himself on this descent to stay, whatever, 20, 30 seconds behind me and chase me all day. He's going to bet that uh, maybe his teammates or someone else is going to come up from the rear and they'll be able to chase me down. And uh, that was it. That ended up being the tactical failure. Yeah, I mean, say what you will about Froome, but there have been several points in his career, I think, where he has learned from a tactical mistake or, or uh, improved on a clear weakness. I mean, remember early in his career, people talked about how he was a poor bike handler because he crashed like the 2014 Tour de France. It was like, ah, oh, Froome's a poor bike handler. Is he, is he ever going to be as good as we think he sh- should be? And then he just became this really good attacking descender, won some stages at the tour, like attacking on stages where nobody expected him to. And then, yeah, with Formigal, people wonder, ah, well, is Froome tactically sound enough to continue winning at this rate? Apparently, yes, because he learned from that mistake as well. So this is a guy who definitely does develop even into his 30s as a rider tactically. Hoodie, were people talking at all about Formigal on those final few days of the Giro? Oh, yeah. They were talking about it. I wrote a story about it. I guess you guys don't read your own website. (laughs) <laughs> but um, already uh, going in on the Wednesday, okay, we had the Tuesday stage was the time trial. And the Wednesday stage was this kind of lumpy transitional stage, had kind of breakaway, sprint written all over it. And man, Team Sky put Pools and Elisande in a breakaway on this first little lumpy climb. And Mitchelton Scott had to bury themselves to catch these guys. And the break didn't go until 100Ks into the stage. And I was going around asking some sport directors, and Garate, the sport director at EF Dropak, said, he goes, oh, look at Team Sky. They're racing very differently, uh, putting guys in the break. You know, something that Team Sky has never done. Team Sky has always been this kind of fortress Froome defensive mode because Froome usually has the lead, so you just race to defend. So Team Sky had to turn its tactics upside down in this Giro. And... Uh, I talked to Nicola Portal, the sport director at uh, Team Sky, and they basically said, look, these guys are so strong on the climbs, we're going to have to drop them in the valleys. And so going into that stage, uh, 19 of Bardenechia, it had basically ambush written all over it. And uh, I think that all the teams were bracing for it. You knew that's where I think everyone knew if Froome was going to go, that's where it had to go. The only difference I would say between – what happened in that stage, the Bardenechia stage, and Formigal, is that in Formigal, the entire stage was 118 kilometers long, whereas Froome's solo attack was 80. So, And also in Formigal, the attacks happened actually uh, in the neutral rollout zone. They had like a 15K neutral rollout zone that day, and Contador never started attacking before they got to kilometer zero. And I think in Formigal, it was kind of this uh, perfect storm of interest that got together Coltador was there with Quintana and some stage hunters. It was a good-sized group. Froome got gapped out, whereas this is where Froome and Sky just dropped the hammer and blasted everyone off the, off the finestre. You know, but you, that was definitely on their minds. You talked about uh, Mitchelton Scott. I'm curious, what was the attitude like within that team uh, the last couple of days of the Giro, knowing that they, you know, they had this guy who was right up there, right into the end in Simon Yates, and then uh, was not meant to be. What was the attitude like around that team? Well, it was interesting that night. We actually uh, just coincidentally, our, our hotel was the same team hotel as the, the Mitchelton Scott. So by the time we walked in, the the team, the riders were actually just walking out. We saw Simon Yates was there, and you know they were kind of solid. And I saw Swain. I had I said hi to him, and didn't really have a chance to talk to those guys. They were all just going right to bed. We sat down, and all of the team managers and the sport directors and. Swannies, they were all throwing down. They were drinking because their Giro was over. <laughs> but but it but it was kind of it was kind of like a, a bittersweet celebration because they even the the, the Jerry uh, Jerry with the owner was there and uh, the team manager was there. Whitey was there, and they all came by the table and said, "Look, you know, 
we're we're not ashamed at anything. You know, we're, this is this is our project for the future. We look we took so much out of this Giro. You know, they were not down at all. They were they were more energized and excited about what the future held because they have Simon Yates, Adam Yates, Chavez. They got three of the most promising young GC guys, and Simon Yates, man, to do what he did. Okay, man, he fell maybe two days short, but all these guys have learned lessons from that experience, and and uh, you know, then they came back the next day and yeah, they won the stage. Well, you caught up with uh, Swain Tuff there at the summit at Cervinia. Sounds like he was pretty tired. Let's uh, let's hear from old Swainy, see what he had to say. Here we are with the uh, finish line. Up here you got Matterhorn in the, in the, the distance, but you're probably glad this sucker's over, huh, Swain? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, filthy last two days, and uh, they get most guys are hands on their hands and knees. So, uh, yeah, beautiful place to finish up. This is kind of my my dream area here. <laughs> exactly. It's been kind of a nightmare for you guys probably the last two days to lose the jersey the way you did, but the team rallied today, won a stage. Would you ever help us out just to put an explanation mark on this on this Giro? Yeah, fantastic ride by Nieve, and uh, again, it just shows the depth of the team, and uh, that spirit never really dies, you know? Um, and you know, people, are, like I said before, people are human, and uh, there's ups and downs in life, that's the beauty of life. And what's it been like for you in this uh, Giro Swain? You guys got the, got the pink jersey so early, it was probably that you were earning every penny during this Giro, eh? Yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty full on. A lot of, a lot of work. Um, you know, it's hard enough sometimes to just get through a zero, but uh, to defend every day, wow, that's a whole other, whole other uh, bag. <laughs> and what was that like uh, yesterday when you guys saw Sky? Kind of massing at the base of the uh, fenestre. Was it a kind of bad feeling at that moment? Well, I think you know, at, at first it was just status quo. You had to stay with those guys, but uh, you know, obviously they ripped it, and uh, some guys were on a bad day, and that's that's what happens. That's a very hard climb. Oh yeah. So you either have it or you don't. You, there's no hiding out on a climb like this. Tomorrow, I'll put a fork in it. Little criterium in Roma, and it's done. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be the great parade everyone keeps talking about. It's going to be, I reckon it'll be pretty full on. Eh? City circuits, cobbles, twisty. Yeah. It's going to be nice to finish it, but uh, I reckon it's going to be a pretty solid stage as well. Just cheer madness to the very end, eh? Huh? Cheer madness to the very end. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, man, he sounded pretty... Pretty hose day, just like riding across uh, the Yukon territory, towing your towing your bear dog behind you in the trailer, eh? <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> I mean, you have to say how far how far that team's come. I remember a few years ago, I was with uh, Matt Bowden, one of our ex-staffers, and same thing. Sometimes, just coincidentally, you end up with the same team hotel as some of these teams. And that night, it was actually Swain Tuff and Michael Hepburn were the only two riders left in the entire team. So it was two riders at one table, and they had all the whole support staff, 15, 20 people, and now they were on the verge of winning uh, the Giro Italia. So I think they were, even though there was some obviously disappointment, there were some very happy people inside that organization. It was sort of similar to what you talking about Dumoulin and, and his, uh, whether he kind of screwed up, basically. And it, I, if you look at it from a going-into-the-race perspective and expectations, yeah, I think Simon Yates probably pretty ticked off that it didn't work out. But they did win five stages. I mean, going into the race... For, to, to say, hey, Michelin's going to win five stages, several mountain stages, I would have said, that sounds a little bit aggressive, maybe one stage. So if you look at it from that perspective, it was a pretty successful race. That's a lot of stage wins at a Grand Tour. Yeah, and they confirmed that their man for the future has the legs for, you know, nine-tenths of a Grand right, yeah, Tour. Yeah. You know? He's almost there. <laughs> almost there. Yeah. Just almost. Well, the, the rumor going around was there was a $4 million offer for Simon Yates. Because both of those contracts are up at the end of the season, that that value might have come down a little bit in the last over the last weekend, unfortunately. 
Did I say 4 million? I meant 2.4 million. Yeah, yeah. Still not bad. So, guys, let's get to it. Let's get to the big meatball. Let's get to the uh, skinny, pointy elbowed elephant sitting in the room. And that, of course, is the controversy surrounding this Chris Froome victory at the Giro d'Italia. In the last few days, uh, the internet has been abuzz with lots of columns, tweets, Facebook posts. And, you know, our, ni- our names are not Nigel and Henry. We're not living in, like, some outskirts or London. We're here in the United States. So most of those comments have been very negative. Uh, I believe our colleagues over at Cycling Tips said that Chris Froome was crapping all over the Giro d'Italia or crapping all over cycling. Um, I believe our colleagues, uh, well, Philippa York, Cycling News, wrote, she didn't really say it, but she said that... Uh, Sean Kelly had said that the win was unbelievable and really emphasized how unbelievable it was. Not believable. Don't believe this. Froome is not believable. Uh, I read between the lines in that column. And then um, finally, we had the most recent column. Well, actually, it was an interview given by Bernard Hino to the Belgian newspaper Het Last News where he basically said that this was terrible for cycling and that Chris Froome should not have participated in the Giro d'Italia. And uh, he said some other very Bernard Hinolian things. So is this it, guys? I mean, is this the, uh, the apocalypse? Is cycling ending right now? Chris Froome won the Giro in dramatic fashion. I mean, I, in our last podcast, I, I remarked by saying, of course, the only cyclist with a pending anti-doping violation hanging over his head is also the one who mounts the most improbable comeback victory in modern Grand Tour history. Oops, coincidence? Oops. Hoodie, what do you think? What are people talking about uh, over there? What were people talking about in the race? Yeah, it's such a funny uh, story because I kind of wrote a a column about this too. Everyone's trying to get their heads around what you saw. Sometimes on the ground, you're inside the bubble and you just see things in a different way than when you're watching from 30,000 miles away. And the, you know, not everyone is happy with Chris Froome being in the Giro d'Italia. Believe me, there was a lot of grumbling under, under, under people's, uh, uh, you know, not everyone was happy to see him in the race. And not everyone believes that Team Sky is uh, the cleanest of the clean. However, the, uh, the feeling in the race was that uh, Chris Froome just did something amazing. I mean, there, there's, there's still a debate even inside, even inside but it's, I think it's just uh, uh, augmented and amplified uh, via the social media. Social media reaction is always, uh, always uh, surprises me on almost any issue. You're going through reading, reading some of these comments on Twitter and forums, and everyone's convinced that everyone is using a motor. And I picked up on that just kind of reading some of the comments. So I started to sniff around uh, the last week or so into the Giro and to really see what the UCI is doing with this new X-ray machine and how they are checking for motors. It's a big issue with the new president, La Partiente. And I'll have a story out on Velo News later this week about that. But, you know, the thing is, it's like Area 51 territory for me. I mean, Froome might seem like an alien, but he is, does not have a motor in his bike. That's almost a guarantee. His bike was scanned X-ray, not just not the little iPad thing, but full-on X-ray on the stage of Bardinecchia and the stage of Trevenia. I witnessed that personally on the Trevenia stage. And the idea that somehow they can swap out a bike or hide a motor or somehow use uh, these, these, these bearings, magnetic bearings or whatever, that stuff, that is stuff of science fiction. Yeah. What do you think, Dane? I got, I got to agree with Hoodie on that one. I yeah. think, I think it's, uh, I mean, people really are, people are looking for controversies, I think, especially in this sport, which has had so many of them. Uh, and I think uh, motor doping or mechanical doping, as people like to call it, is a, is a really, uh, it's a fun one for people to latch onto because it's just so out of the norm, I guess. But yeah, I, I think uh, for all the talk of it, there just has been so little actual concrete um, uh, yeah, findings that this is a that this is a real problem at the world tour level. Of course, that's also was kind of true of you know actual dope like blood doping and uh, in EPO for a while there. But there were also murmurs and whispers, I think, of that, and I, I haven't really heard those on the mechanical doping side. What about the greater question though? Is is Chris Froome racing the Giro ruining cycling? Is he crapping on cycling? I personally don't think that it's, I don't know, my my take on this is that it shouldn't be on Chris Froome, just like it shouldn't be on any one rider to make that decision. 
Uh, my, my thought on this is if, if you don't like Chris Froome racing the Giro or the Tour, you need to take it up with the anti-doping authorities who allow him to do that, uh, which is sort of, it's a, sort of a cynical point of view, I think, because, yeah, it would be nice if riders just recuse themselves from racing, but I don't expect them to do that. I just don't think that's ever going to happen, and I don't, I don't think we can rely on that. And so if you, if you don't want him to be racing, I think that should be something that you've got to take up with the authorities, and you shouldn't expect Froome to be this gallant, oh, I'll take myself out of the race, just like you shouldn't expect anybody to be. All right, I'm going to take you all on a journey. You guys want to go on my Chris Froome journey with me? Let's go. So I've been on a journey the last few days because I, too, watched Chris Froome's Improbable Ride Stage 19, and I'm not going to lie, I was super pissed off. I am kind of sick and tired of seeing Chris Froome win races. Um, I'm really sick of the sky uh, messaging. I am, you know, I've been a little bit dubious and concerned about the reports come out about, you know, TUEs and about uh, Ken Accord and about all these different things. And so the natural reaction that I had to was like, well, oh, Chris Froome must be cheating. He must be doping. He shouldn't even be here. What the heck? I was pissed. I was in a bad mood. I like wrote some tweets into my drafts and then deleted them, which word to the wise, don't post those tweets ever. And then over the you know the next few days, I had some bike rides, and I did some thinking about it, and I did some rationalizing, and it was like, you know, first of all, if Chris Froome were going to cheat, why would he cheat at this Giro? He is already under a ton of scrutiny. He's already has an, this adverse analytical hanging over his head. Plus, he's getting paid maybe a few million euro just to just to you know show up so there really isn't a ton of pressure on him to win other than whatever pressure he's putting on himself so you know if he were to be caught up in some doping scandal what would happen to those two million euros would those go away would that be in jeopardy and what would that really mean for his legacy it just seems like the risk versus reward of doping at this year's giro or using a motor or whatever just is really lopsided towards a smart person not wanting to do it so there was that part then there was the emotional end of me being angry that chris Froome had won which really reminded me of a lot of the tweets that we got and a lot of the feedback we got on social media Here's my next part of the rant, which is that when I really, really was honest with myself, the real reason that I was upset that Chris Froome had won was just because he's not on my team. You know, it's sort of the most basic sports fandom dynamic that all of us are privy to, which is team and hero affiliation. And it's just like, you probably, if you, if you hate Chris Froome and that he won and you think he's an awful doper, you know, maybe sit down and be honest with yourself and say, wait, is the reason that I actually dislike Chris Froome because he looks like crap on a bicycle or because he totally destroyed Alberto Contador, who was my favorite cyclist, or because his team has the most money and they're the New England Patriots of cycling and they're shady and they're smug and they're kind of jerks. And, you know, they just smash everyone with these boring tactics. Is that why I hate Chris Froome? Because here's the thing. Hating Chris Froome for all those reasons, that's fine. That's perfectly fine. You know, you can totally hate the guy because you think he looks like a total stooge on a bike or he stares at his bike computer or like he, you know, he does any of these things. But there's a big gap between that and hating a guy because he had an awesome ride in a grand tour and you think he cheated to do so, even though there's really not any proof out there because of it. Yeah, you brought up Tom, you brought up the Patriots. And I think there's a really good analog there. I mean, do you hate him because of Deflategate, or do you hate him because he wins all the time? I hate them because you know? they're not the Denver Broncos. That's yeah, exactly, why I hate exactly. the Patriots. Right, right, right. <laughs> that, that's that's a great take there, Fred. That's got to be uh, right there in your top five of all time. I love that. I love that little screed there. You know, I would I would I would I would agree with you on a lot of what you just said because I think there are people looking at Chris Froome and today's Peloton through the lens that the sport is just completely awash in a sea of red blood bags and EPO syringes. Now, if we believe that they're no longer doing that, um, do we believe that Chris Froome is maybe the only guy still doing that? Like, he rides like he's doped. So the assumption would be that everyone else must be clean, that he's the only one doping. And all your defense of, of Froome's logic of why he would 
and there's no incentive for Chris Froome to to take risk now. Like my my view of cycling, you know, I've been in the sport for a long time. I just feel like that, that there's a, there's always this kind of um, level playing field within the sport. I don't think any time in the history of the sport has there been one team or one rider that's doing something that the other teams aren't doing, right? So that when Epo came in in the 1990s, there was maybe one or two teams that first got into the game that first season or two, but then everyone else started saying, what the hell are they doing? So then everyone started doing the exact same thing. And then the same thing went in with, say, the blood bags. And then we got into the biological passport era, and it kind of confused the waters. No one knew how to race anymore. And if we believe the narrative that the teams have pulled back the organized doping, you know, where are the teams looking for advantage? They're looking for advantage legally, you know, through their uh, training programs and through nutrition and through their technical, you know, their, all the uh, legal stuff that they can do. And maybe they're pushing these little gray zones of TUEs and corticoids and salbutamol or whatever. But I highly doubt it that all the other teams are not doing the exact same thing that Team Sky and Chris Froome are doing. And I will add a little caveat to that. The only schism I see in this is the MPCC, because those teams live and ride by a different creed. And I think that's where we might see a little bit divide inside my little idea that there's this kind of equal playing field among the pros. Because like back in Lance Arum, all those guys were doing the same drugs that Lance Armstrong was doing. And we still had a winner of the race. Now, those have been erased, and they say that Lance was the biggest devil of them all. Now, Froome is beating everyone, and now he is the devil. But I really highly doubt that he's doing anything that not the rest of these other guys are doing. And the argument is now, we believe, supposedly, they're doing a lot less than those dirty old days. I also wonder, it's like, does Salbutamol allow someone to go on an 80K solo breakaway after attacking over the Finestre? You know, does Salbutamol allow you to have the tactical savvy to be able to do that and bet that your biggest rival is going to like wait up and, you know, try to wait for the cavalry and that you're then not going to test positive at the end of the stage for something that does have a test. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot of what ifs and it's like, look, you know, caveat, 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 it's cycling. Sure enough, you know, we could have to play this podcast over to ourselves five years from now and be like, ah, boy, we didn't really see they were all racing on motors with, you know, blood bags hanging out of them the entire time. But something tells me that's not the case. You know, it is always a leap of faith to be a cycling fan. But I think that also something also that makes you a cycling fan is there is the, um, the presence of the death ray to a result. And that's something that like mainstream sports fans don't have. It's not like they're ever going to take away Tom Brady's and the Patriots Super Bowl, but like we have the potential for that. And I think that warps the way that fans react to um, performances, especially if it's by a rider who they don't like, like Chris Froome. Hey, I actually hate him because he has pointy elbows and he looks like a dweeb on a bike, but I'm hoping and praying that like the death ray comes down and zaps his result off the record books because that happens in cycling from time to time. So it's an interesting dynamic, and it's one that we're going to see play out for the next few weeks because Chris Froome right now is saying he's going to race the Tour de France. We don't have a resolution yet. Uh, La Partian has said that the chances of his uh, adverse analytical case being resolved prior to the Tour was... Uh, at 50%, then it's less than 50%. I don't know. Now it just seems to be like it's a binary. It will or it won't. Yeah, I think, I think that the expectation from everyone I've talked to in and around this issue believes that Chris Froome is going to race the Tour de France. The case might be resolved before then, but I highly doubt it. I mean, you have uh, a lot of lawyers getting involved in this process right now and a speedy resolution is not usually something uh, associated with lawyers being involved, especially when, especially when the deadline involves, you know, if you get it done too early, your, your main guy misses the Tour de France. And Chris Froome believes he is going to get it off. I mean, he, he, uh, he has said so publicly. He even uh, told me privately, he goes, Hoodie, I believe I'm going to get it off. Like, no ban. He's going to be able to demonstrate that he did nothing wrong. He did not break the rules. Uh, you know, how that plays out in front of this uh, tribunal, we'll have to see, you know, and then on top of that, you can expect a 
cost appeal as well. This is a never-ending story, boys. It, it won't be over before the tour starts, I guarantee that. Well, as we said back in the winter, this is going to be the story to take us through 2018. So until next time, we check in with the Chris Froome Circus. Uh, Hoodie, great job out there at the Giro. Thanks so much for all the quality reporting. I recommend that all the listeners go back and actually read uh, lots of Hoodie stories from this Giro because I'm just going to go out and say it, man. You are the best reporter, uh, English language reporter on the Giro this year. Uh, your story really took readers inside it. And I'm, and I'm not just saying that because I like you and I uh, sign your paychecks. <laughs> Thank you very much, Fred. I appreciate that. Looking forward to being at the tour with both of you guys. All right. Well, coming up, we're going to check in with Chris Case to talk Dirty Kanza and hear about what it's like to race over 200 miles of gravel roads. It makes my butt hurt just Ugh. thinking about it. All right, Melanie's Podcast, Fred Dreyer with Dane Cash, and we are joined by our managing editor, Chris Case. Chris, you are getting ready to race the Dirty Kanza. First of all, for the listeners who may not be familiar with the Dirty Kanza, give us a description of what this little challenge is all about. Mm. It is a 200-mile race through the Flint Hills of Kansas in probably 95-degree heat. Uh, I've heard it best described as a criterion, or let's, a cyclocross race turns into a road race, turns into an individual time trial. That's kind of the breakdown of, of the race. This is basically the World Series slash Super Bowl of gravel racing. It is one of the oldest gravel races. It's definitely the one that has the most industry support by it. And it's the longest. Well, it's not the longest. It's, it's not the longest. It's a long it's, one. Yeah, it's a long one. It's relatively long. We're going to be heading out there, uh, Chris, myself, Brad Kaminsky, the Melody staff, to go and cover this race because the prominence that it has now in the gravel racing world. But Chris, you are going mm. out there because you're going to race mm. it. And now this is your second time racing it. So before we talk about your preparation for this time, <laughs> what happened the first time you raced it? Let's get the race report from Chris Case's first Dirty Kanza. Oh, man. The first time I did it, I, uh, you know, I did, I got lucky in that I lived. Let's put it that way. I, um, I did a lot of things wrong. I did a lot of things last minute. But I got to the start line with a bike and some pedals on that bike, and I pedaled for a really long time. Went out really hard, as you do in races, even though they're 12 to 15 hours to 21 hours long, however long it turns into for uh, the given person. But for me, I went out really hard. I ended up staying with Dan Hughes, who is now a four-time winner of Dirty Kanza. That was the fourth time he would win it that year. I was with him and a couple other guys when I pulled over to the side of the road and started dry heaving because I had gone a little too hard. That was about mile 100, uh-huh. so halfway. Yeah. I was, I was at that, in that condition. <laughs> so you can imagine what the rest of my day was like. I faded a little bit. Um, it's really hard. It's a really hard race. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like since the race starts so fast and since it's a lot of amped up bike racers who are scheduling their season around it, there is the, you know, the threat of going out too hard and putting a little bit too much power into the pedals. So like, what are the things you have to watch out for when doing a 200 mile race? I think one of the biggest things is that not getting too excited, not getting into the red too much because um, you know, from Colorado, I'm used to longer climbs. You get to Kansas, and it's not as flat as you think. It's got thousands of feet of climbing, and it comes in small doses. So every time you come to one of these little climbs, the the uh, field, the tendency is for them to sort of power up and surge over these little climbs and get them over with. But you do that a hundred times in a day, and it really adds up. Um, so you gotta you gotta sag climb your way up these things, you know, drift towards the back of the group that you're in so that you don't expend too much energy. Just trying to stay as consistent and steady as possible is the the way to do it. Um, you can certainly go into the red a little bit, but you just don't want to stay there because it's not sustainable. You know, there's a breaking point, aerobic threshold, if you will, that you could ride at 
theoretically indefinitely, and you want to stay as close to that, if not under that, all day long. But there are going to be times when you can't do that. You know, hold a wheel so you can latch onto a group. You're in the wind. It's your turn at the front of the of the pace line, whatever the case may be. So, just finding a big guy like yourself, Fred, and yeah. sitting on his wheel as long as possible. That's my goal. Now, I've done a number of Ironman races. I've never done the Dirty Kansas. I've done a few Ironman races in my day. And, you know, the one of the challenges with Ironman is, you know, there's the physiological side, but then there's also sort of the mental emotional side, which is that, you know, throughout the course of a 10, 11, 12-hour race, you have moments where you feel like crap. And your brain tells yourself, you feel like crap now, you're never going to feel better. This mm. is it. This mm-hmm. is the new homeostasis. It's downhill from here. And one of the tricks in Iron Man is convincing yourself, no, I feel bad right now, but three hours from now, I actually may feel good. You know, I may get some food in me, some water. My body may get used to this, and I'll feel better. Mm-hmm. For me on the run, that was never the case. It just started off bad and always went <laughs> worse, but I have to convince myself, hey, you yeah. might feel better. Now, how do you deal with the mental, emotional side that – is brought up from this race because unlike Ironman where you're working towards the next leg Mm. where you're like, ah, I'm biking right now. My butt hurts. Biking sucks, but I get to run pretty soon and that'll be fun. Right. Hint, it's not. In in this, you're just out there riding. Yeah. What do you do for those, those bad, nasty thoughts? There, there's a few things you, you can do. And, and interestingly enough, uh, we did a recent fast talk episode on the principle of dominant thought. So it's not just about staying positive, but um, there are a lot of things you can do to help yourself get through um, a race like this. And no, there aren't transitions to another event, but there are these aid stations. You can create smaller goals. You can break things down into chunks so they're a little bit more digestible. Oh, I just need to get to that farmhouse way over there, and then I'll go to the next farmhouse or... That aid station, you know, the aid stations are only 50 miles apart. That's a, 50 miles is a long ways, but it's it's a lot easier to grapple with than 200 miles. So you break it down into that. Um, I will probably have a small little, uh, uh, we'll call them a mascot on my bike, which is, um, I'm calling my bike the narwhal because I'm going with one aero bar. So I might mount a little narwhal on my uh, on my bike to remind me of my daughter, whose one of her first words was narwhal. So there you go. I will have reminders of other things in my life to distract me from the pain. You know, at certain points you want to key into, oh, my legs feel great, or whatever, things that keep you upbeat. But if those start to distract you and they become more um, painful, then you want to distract yourself from those painful things. So you look, maybe there's words on your stem like breathe, cadence, hips, whatever it takes, um, things like that to distract you from the pain. So there's different ways to go about it. Do people listen to music? I'm sure they do. I am not a person that listens to music. I honestly, I don't even know if that's legal or not. I'm sure people do it regardless. It's a long time out there. I'm not one that regularly does that. Um, Yeah, Iron Man, when I was doing at least, you could not so at some point I would start singing to myself or hey. get like a song stuck in my head. And usually it was like a, the worst song <laughs> to ever yes, get stuck in your head for like running a marathon, like a slow song, like slow R&B song mm. with like really offensive oh, lyrics. God. Well, there's a really, really annoying song about narwhals that I might get stuck in my head. Okay. You should just listen to the Fast Talk podcast. Uh, well, I could Wouldn't do that, that too. <laughs> yeah. FTP. Hmm. Mm. Uh, so Chris... Here's a question for you. Why do you think Dirty Kanza has blossomed into this international event and sort of this uh, World Series Super Bowl of gravel racing? Why this race and why not some of the other races? Well, I think it's a combination of uh, the, the the challenge of it. I mean, it's it it set itself up to be a a um, an event that is not just about winning but completing. You know, it's a it's a triathlon type event for people that want a challenge in their life. Maybe they do it once and they check it off their list and like, wow, I survived Dirty Kansas. So it's not a fifty mile race, it's not a hundred mile race, it's two hundred miles. It's a big deal. I, I think that the in town the town of Emporia has embraced this race. It's gotten a lot of attention. People have have come there, seen what the race can be, seen how beautiful it actually is in the Flint Hills. It's not pancake flat by any means. You've got big 
puffy white clouds in the sky, blue skies, um, green rolling hills. It goes on forever, but it can be quite beautiful. So there's that element of it. And I'm sure that, you know, Jim Cummins deserves um, some credit in making this and promoting this race into what it is now and his whole team. Yeah, I mean, we have an all-star lineup of past and present uh, all-star athletes. I mean, Ted King, former road pro. Jeff Kabush is going to be out there. Uh, Katie Keogh, cyclocross racer. Rebecca Rush. Uh, you know, and She's then- doing the 350 event this year, oh, the XL, DKXL. Oh, just just saying a 350 mile bike race makes my butt hurt um we have yeah there's a number of strong guys and gals that are going to be out there and i also think it's cool that dirty kanza and these gravel races races have spawned these new heroes of the gravel racing movement uh, guys like dan hughes matt stevens you know people who may have never risen above like regional cat one superhero but yeah. in the gravel scene they are these titans because they have the physiology to survive so you know you mentioned it earlier with the narwhal uh, you have a pretty <laughs> interesting setup going on for I this do. and now your effort at dirty kanza and your uh, online training blogs and racing blogs you have, we have some sponsors who Correct. are helping you out- outfit you with some gear what does your setup look like yeah so i'm i'm riding the 3t exploro which is an aero gravel bike, which some people would probably laugh at, but if you think about it, you're out there for a really long time, and you've got a lot of wins in these in these gravel races. So an aerodynamic bike makes a lot of sense, and it saves you certainly over the long run. So 3T Exploro, I've got the I've modified it to, to you know with my saddle and and my narwhal setup with the one aero up bar up front. We've got some new wheels from from Envy, some new gravel wheels that are super wide, making you know the interface with with the tires that there's so many tires out there right now for gravel and gravel racing that it makes that um, the, just the more volume, more a better interface, all that reduces the number of um, sort of pinch flats and, and burping issues you have with the tubeless setup. And then I've got a power tap because I'm all about data and science, so I need lots of data, and uh, the power tap will provide that over the long run, over that t- hopefully 12-hour day, maybe maybe a little longer. Single arrow bar. Explain Singular. it. Single arrow bar. Well, you know, you've seen a trend recently of, maybe it's not a recent trend, but you look at a lot of road racers, when they're off the front in a solo break or something like that, they'll rest their elbows on the tops of their handlebars, and they'll sort of dangle their um, hands over the front of their bars. Some people call it their, their puppy paws dangling out there. Um, but I'm on gravel, so I thought putting one aero bar out there would give me a, a bit more stability. I probably won't be in the aero bars too often. I didn't want any pads up on the tops because I will want to be riding up there for, for better control. So um, I, I'd rather not talk about my single aero bar setup and give away my super secret advantage to everybody that's going to listen to this podcast anymore. So let's just end there. All right. Well, (laughs) we're going to be checking in with you uh, this coming week to see how your Dirty Kanza ended up. And again, we're going to have a whole Vela News crew out at the Dirty Kanza this weekend telling stories, taking photos, and watching Chris do his thing because it's probably going to be a painful one. Yeah, and uh, I will talk a lot about that pain and a lot more of the science of my training and nutrition and things like that on a future episode of Fast Talk with Trevor. Coach Connor. So, guys, before we get out of here, Dane, you know what we have to do? We have to give a little shout-out. Shout-out to our countrywoman, Corinne Rivera, Mm. because Corinne Rivera scored her first Women's World Tour win of the season. First pro win. Pro-win at the uh, Thurgan Ladies Tour. I guess it's not a women's world tour. It's a pro-win. But still, it's a big deal. Dane, you spent some time with Corinne. Why is this a big deal for her in 2018? Yeah, she took a little while to get off the ground uh, this season. After coming off of last season, which was this huge breakthrough year, suddenly she went from being a good domestic racer to, holy crap, she's like one of the best in the world. Uh, And then this season, she just, you know, she dealt with some illness over the classics Really struggled to get any big results there. Just you know, put, a, put together a couple of top tens, and that's kind of it. Uh, and then at, at the Engine Tour California, she was expected, I think, to win at least a stage, if not two, because there were two sprint finishes there. Um, so for her to actually finally get that win, 
that's a pretty big hump to overcome, I think. And she has, she did mention when I talked to her uh, earlier this year, her and her, her uh, sports director mentioned that they were putting a pretty significant focus on the second half of the season this year, which they did not do so much last year. So for her to finally get this win, I think that puts her on track for a nice, you know, maybe return to the level where she really wants to be, hopefully for the, for the second half of the season. Well, if she starts winning too much like Chris Froome, we're going to have to say that Corinne oh, yeah. Rivera's ruining cycling. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, man. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the VeloNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine, And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VeloNews. The VeloNews podcast is produced by VeloNews which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Vellanews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boo Boo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. <laughs>